I look out and I see quite a few familiar faces, but I just want to recognize somebody. Brian Collier. We were in the Beeson class together, 97, 98. He taught me how to pronounce Tupelo, Mississippi. And I see you brought some folks up. See, Asbury's the place where North meets South and become lifetime friends. So great to see you again and many others. So when's the last time you heard a sermon on holiness? Now, I know you're sitting in chapel in the largest Wesleyan holiness seminary in the world, so the chances of you having heard a sermon on holiness are probably higher than the average American Christian, right? To many people in many circles, this word sounds archaic. And so be honest, with which century do you associate the word? The 21st? Hmm. Now, at Ro New Room 2019, there was a dynamic young woman from Great Britain named Miriam Swanson. Now that's her married name. She gave a great talk. And she told how she and a group of her friends were seeing great revival and a lot of conversions among university students in England. So they got away to fast and pray and ask the Lord for their next strategic move in reaching university students. The answer they each got from the Lord astonished them. The Lord said, holiness. She said up to this point in her life she had never heard a sermon on holiness. She didn't even know what it was. So she started researching and was astonished to find out what a prominent theme it is in the Bible. She now says she cannot imagine a student renewal movement that's not centered on God's power to liberate us from sin and make us a force for good. That is holiness. Now, I'm coming from the opposite end of the spectrum here. I've spent my whole life in the Free Methodist Church, and I'm going to give you a little intro to this here. We are known as a holiness denomination. Can we get an amen out there from somebody? It was God. <clears throat> Our founder, B.T. Roberts, said that God had called us into existence in 1860 to raise up a holy people. Now, we did take a stand against slavery, and we stood for the poor with free seats and many other social expressions of holiness, but it all flowed out of heart holiness from our founders. Our forebears' experience of holiness was central to why God brought us into existence. We were heirs of John and Charles Wesley, who in 18th century England believed that God had raised up the people called Methodists, you know what it was? To spread scriptural holiness across the land. Well then, Asbury Theological Seminary had to make that one bigger, one better. So we're about ready to celebrate 100 years of our history, and you know that the grand vision from the beginning was to spread scriptural holiness around the world. Forget about just the land. You'd think that holiness would have been a major theme in my life, something I've studied and preached about a lot and contended for, but here's the deal, it's kind of complicated. On the one hand, in my childhood, we sang about holiness a lot. Do you ever fantasize about being on Jeopardy? So whenever, whenever they have the category for the Bible, it's like, who built the ark? I mean, you know you're gonna run that category. So now I'm fantasizing that they would have a, a category called Holiness hymns and Sunday night songs. I would run that thing. And quite a few of you who are over 50 would also. How about this? Because the holiness we sang about was beautiful. In fact, if I were to give the questions to those answers, I would have to answer like this. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Right? We would go on with that. Glorious freedom, wonderful freedom, you know it. 
called unto holiness, church of our God. Do you know that every church of the Nazarene ordination service still uses that song? How about this? All my life long, I had panted for a draft from some cool spring. It's kind of funny when a 10-year-old sings that. <laughs> but when you get to the chorus, hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long had craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. Through his blood, I now am saved. I could sing that sincerely at the age of 10. Ho, everyone who is thirsty in spirit. Ho, everyone who is weary and sad. And that, that song did what a lot of them did. It had one verse for the lost who needed to be converted and another verse for the converted who needed to be sanctified. Child of the kingdom, be filled with the spirit. Nothing but fullness your longing can meet. See, that's it. And that's how I was formed in my theology of holiness. We sang holy, 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 but only on Sunday morning. Because literally it says, early in the morning, our song shall rise to thee. So we never sang that one on Sunday night. But these songs are all gone. They've been replaced with contemporary songs, many of which I love. But I'm asking myself these days, along with Matt Redman, where are the songs about holiness? We'll return to this theme a little bit later. Actually, for most of my adult life, I've sensed that we free Methodists have been downplaying and soft-peddling the word holiness, and especially the related theological term, entire sanctification. It's like we've become embarrassed by it. Why did that happen? We have some scholars here who could probably give you the real answer, but I'll take a few cracks at it. Probably for a lot of reasons. Maybe fewer people were experiencing the transforming power of the Spirit and the testimonies claiming liberation from sin and a life of spiritual victory waned. Over the decades, there was a cooling off, and maybe it wasn't all bad. So I went to high school with a guy who was not a believer, but he loved to tell me that he grew up in North Michigan, and his family lived next door to a little old country free Methodist church, and their primary entertainment was to go peek through the windows and watch those people running the aisles and falling out, and they thought it was hilarious. But the church of my youth was a college church in Spring Arbor, Michigan. No aisle running there, just an occasional amen. In fact, a chorus of amens, often led by Reverend Verdon Dunkel, affectionately known as Uncle Dunk. And I think that when Uncle Dunk was promoted to glory, the amen corner went silent. You might say that as a movement, we gradually grew from the sectarian fringe a little bit closer to the mainstream maybe through what's called redemption and lift, and maybe the GI Bill, which helped a lot of my parents' generation go to college, get educated, and climb a rung or two up the social ladder. So our worship style got more respectable and definitely tamer. And we didn't make such outrageous claims about how God can transform us in an instant. And then there was the matter of dress. I'm going to bring this little tidbit of our history out of the closet, so to speak. I've heard enough stories from my own mom to know that the church had drifted away from a passionate focus on God in all his splendid holiness and had begun defining and measuring holiness by focus on external things like clothing. We had drifted into legalism so that we could judge our own and one another's holiness by behaviors like words we said and didn't say, places we went and didn't go, clothes we wore and didn't wear. Well, we always wore clothes. <laughs> Which kinds of clothes? So, 
while the other girls in mom's high school wore sheer nylon stockings with seams up the back, fashionable, my mom and her sisters had to wear those opaque, beige, old lady hose, which mom absolutely hated. In fact, she has confessed that there were times on her way to school she stopped at a friend's house and swapped out her nylons. I was talking with Howard and Jan Snyder about this yesterday, and Howard said that his dad told him that when he was called to enforce that rule on the campus where he was teaching, he said, I can't do that because I'd have to spend my day looking at all the girls' legs. So I won't do that. No makeup, no jewelry, except for some unknowable reason, you could wear fancy brooches, which they called pins. I don't see the difference between bracelets and brooches, but these things have unwritten rules that everybody knows. The brooches must have been a loophole somewhere that didn't ever get written into the, the rules. The written rule against wedding rings caused my mom so much chagrin during her first pregnancy that when she got pregnant with me, she announced to dad that she was going to the dime store and buying herself a wedding band, and she did. Because she didn't want nine more months of people wondering if she was married when she was walking around pregnant in 1955. I won't go on, but let's just say that our slide into legalism after the slide into legalism, the next generation downplayed our distinctives and became more or less regular evangelicals. I think that preaching on entire sanctification has been rare in the past few decades, and ending that sermon with an invitation to be sanctified on the spot, non-existent. Now I'm going to fast forward to 2019. You might be relieved that I'm not going all the way back there anymore, but when Bishop Keith Cowart, who's sitting right here, who's also an Asbury alum, and Bishop Matt Whitehead, who's an also, also an Asbury D. Men, and I were elected. There are only three bishops in the United States. The other three all retired at once. Here's Bishop David Kendall as one of those. And we three newbies were all elected at once. Very quickly, we realized that there was no consensus in our movement about who we are. From region to region, generation to generation, and just anyone's guess, was all kinds of confusion about what it means to be a free Methodist in 2019, 2020. So the pandemic offered us an opportunity, since we were grounded for 18 months, to really look into and, and seek God to say, who are we really meant to be? What was our founding charism? Why did God bring us into existence as a movement? We're a kingdom people, but there's something special about us. What values do we want to be known for, and what should the identity of the Free Methodist Church look like in the 21st century? Because there's a nagging question at the back of my head. If we won't be the Free Methodist he called us to be, will he have to raise up another denomination? And I realize the irony of that statement this month in this place. The result was something we call the Free Methodist Way. We have five values that shape our identity, and they all have to be held together, and I'm only going to look at one of them. But here, here they are. Life-giving holiness. Notice the adjectives. Life-giving holiness. Love-driven justice. Christ-compelled multiplication. Cross-cultural collaboration. And God-given revelation. We believe in them, all, in them all, and we hold them all together. So the consultant who worked with us and asked us the good questions that led to this clarity recently told us that he shared our five with another group that he was consulting with. So he started off with life-giving holiness, and they said, nah, that's not us. Wait, this is optional? It's like Hebrews 12, 24, 12, 12, 14 in your Bible. 
Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Or is this in your Bible? 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16, which is a New Testament passage. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written three times in Leviticus, be holy, because I'm holy. So now I'm on a quest. I'm pressing in to understand and experience the holiness of God in a new way. And I'm inviting you into that quest for a few minutes here. I begin with a question, what does it mean that God is holy? Exodus 15, 11 asks, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? 1 Samuel 2, 2 declares, there's none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. A pastor named Paul Tripp, who's not necessarily a holiness pastor, wrote this. God's holiness is not an aspect of who he is or what he does. No, God's holiness is the essence of who he is. If you were to ask, how is the holiness of God revealed, the only right answer would be in everything he does. Everything God thinks, desires, speaks, and does is utterly holy in every way. Let's go to Isaiah 6, where we get a glimpse of the heavenly scene. Isaiah writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We see a similar throne room in Revelation 4, in which four living creatures day and night never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They don't say it once. They don't say it twice. It's exponentially holy. Holy, holy, holy. Now, Pastor John Tyson from New York City has said, these angels were locked in a room with God for thousands of years, and they still haven't gotten past the word holy. (laughs) Three times they say it. Not merciful, merciful, merciful. Or even... Love, love, love. Yet John tells us that God is love. Here's what we have to grasp. His holiness describes his essential nature, but absolutely cannot be separated from his love, which is central to his self-revelation. They're part of the same reality. In God is a complete unity of holy love. Our own Old Testament scholar, who happens to be sitting over here, John Oswald, in the Bible Among Myths, writes this. The word chesed is the descriptor par excellence of God in the Old Testament. The word speaks of a completely undeserved kindness and generosity done by a person who's in a position of power. This was the Israelites' experience of God. He revealed himself to them when they were not looking for him, and he kept his covenant with them long after their persistent breaking of it had destroyed any reason for his continued keeping of it. Unlike humans, this deity was not fickle, undependable, self-serving, and grasping. Instead, he was faithful, true, upright, and generous, always. If this faithful covenant love is our Israelite ancestors' experience of God, in all his holiness, revealing himself as 
bright, in fire, in light. Splendid, this God, this holy God, but also full of covenant love. If this faithful love is our Israelite ancestors' experience of God, what about others in the more recent past? How have they described their encounters with this God who is both holy and loving? How does their recognition of God in all his holiness change them? Do you know that Phoebe Palmer is called the mother of the holiness movement? And she, int- she actually influenced our forebears, um, B.T. and Ellen Roberts, especially Ellen, would go to the Tuesday meetings for the promotion of holiness in New York City, picked up some holiness doctrine there. Listen to what Phoebe wrote when she finally encountered God in what she considered a sanctifying experience. I felt that the Spirit was leading into a solemn, most sacred and inviolable compact between God and the soul that came forth from him, by which in the sight of God, angels, and men, I was to be united in eternal oneness with the Lord, my Redeemer, requiring unquestioning allegiance on my part and infinite love and everlasting salvation, guidance, and protection on the part of him who had loved me and redeemed me, so that from henceforth he might say to me, I will betroth thee unto me forever. Do you hear that covenant love? That faithfulness, that undying connection that she felt in the moment of her sanctification, how she experienced God in his holiness was that he loved her and that she was betrothed to him. Beautiful. Asbury's own Wesley scholar, Dr. Kenneth Collins, said in a, in a thing called Seven Minute Seminary, you should check it out sometime. Holiness is informed by the conjunction of holy love. At, li- at least 12 times, Wesley uses the phrase holy love. Let's listen to Wesley himself for a few more minutes. When, Le- when Wesley was asked about the outcome of sanctification, he wrote three things and used them interchangeably. Pure love, Christian perfection, and true holiness. In Thoughts on Christian Perfection, Wesley describes it, Christian perfection or true holiness, in which the pure love of God and neighbor may be realized within us. It's the loving of God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This implies that no wrong temper, none contrary to love, remains in the soul and that all the thoughts, words, and actions are governed by pure love. In the scripture way of salvation, he wrote, we feel the love of God shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us, Romans 5.5, producing love to all mankind, and more especially to the children of God expelling the love of the world, the love of pleasure, of ease and honor and money, and so on. I come back many times to John Wesley's description of what has been called the prayer meeting that saved England. It happened on New Year's Eve, 1738, or more precisely in the early morning hours of January 1, 1739. Here's what he wrote. Mr. Hall, Kinchin, Ingham, Whitfield, Hutchins, and my brother Charles were present at our love feast in Fetter Lane with about 60 of our brethren. About three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground. As soon as we were recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God, we acknowledge thee to be Lord. We were in the presence of the majestic, sovereign king of the universe. 
They recognized him. They worshipped him. Have you ever encountered the majestic presence like that? If you have, like Wesley, you'll never get over it. I have, more than once. The first time, which makes it the most memorable, was in 1970, when the revival that, became acro that began across the street here at Asbury College was carried like hot coals from the altar by students to many other campuses, including Spring Arbor. I was a high school student. But after months of extraordinary encounters with the living God, I could never deny him, never be argued out of the reality of the one true God, the Holy One of Israel, the God in whose presence we couldn't help but bow down and cry out, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Those who have encountered God in undeniable ways testify to both transcendence and imminence, the simultaneous reality of holiness and love, justice and mercy, ultimate power and unfathomable intimacy. To know God's love is to love God back and to long to be made more like him. This is sanctification. Quoting Wesley again, sanctification is the process by which we are saved from the power and root of sin and restored to the image of God. I just have to insert this here. Keith Wasserman is sitting here. Over the decades, we've been in various groups together, and I just remember that back in the 90s, I guess, whenever we sang one of the contemporary choruses that had the phrase in it, we bow down, Keith, I always think of it when I get to the chorus, he would bow down and express in his body that he recognized that the majesty was in the room, and he deserved our honor. The passage from Romans 6 that was read to us so beautifully this morning, and thank you for hurting your foot yesterday so I wouldn't be the only one limping up here today. <laughs> that was really good of you. It reminds us that God's intention is to free us from bondage to sin and liberate us for the life in the spirit in which our desires and affections are centered in God and in glorious freedom. Isn't that beautiful? So I looked up those four verses in the Old Testament that call us to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, and I couldn't find them. You know why? King James. <laughs> now the NRSV translates it, worship the Lord in holy splendor. Maybe that gets us closer to the kind of beauty that holiness is filled with. It's related to light, radiance, glory, unimaginably dazzling beauty. I want this once again for the people called Methodists in all the branches of our family tree. As Matt Redman wrote in an article in the magazine Premier Christianity, one hole in much of our congregational worship today is the holiness of God. Without holiness in the mix, I don't even know if we can call it worship. It may be admiration, maybe even adoration of some kind, but can it truly be worship if there's no element of awe and astonishment? An essential ingredient of all biblical worship is an acknowledgement of the set-apartness of God, that he is holy through and through, and completely off the charts of anything we could ever fathom or imagine. So he goes on for us to call us to sing to God as the Holy One and marvel at those aspects of his nature and character that are worthy of our highest praise, whether or not we are in the picture, okay? Let's not always focus on the themes of reassuring and comforting us in all our troubles. Don't you get tired of that? We should exalt God for the righteous, radiant, and holy king that he is. 
Our lives need to be shaped by a healthy, scripture-based worship diet. We get glimpses of this in some of the best of today's new worship music. The word holy is finding its way back in, even if only in the phrase, holy water on my skin. I do love that song. I know some of you in this room are watching, or those who are watching online, have the gift to compose worship music. I can't wait to sing some of the new songs God is going to inspire you to write in the renaissance of holiness that is coming. I'm going to let Scott McKnight help us to understand how the Spirit sets us up for holiness. This was a new thought for me. The word holiness means to be in God's presence as one devoted to God. And because of devotion, it also means to be separated from the world. This dual meaning strikes the right biblical balance. God is holy. To be with God, to be devoted to God, and to walk with God mean that the companion of God is separate from the world. Devotion to God entails the rejection of devotion to the world, but rejecting the world is not the primary emphasis. Holiness is first and foremost devotion to God. So we could use the word devout. He says, devotion to God doesn't mean isolation or withdrawal, as one finds among some sects, which shall remain nameless now. Rather, holiness means that in this world, one listens and dances to the music of the Holy Spirit instead of the music of the world. Love is not an alternative to holiness. Holiness becomes visible when we love God, others, self, and creation. Holiness, I like to say, is love done well. As you know, the Bible is laced with holiness from beginning to end. I'm betting that now I've freshly drawn your attention to it, you'll begin to see it more and more. Like when I was expecting my two children, I saw other pregnant, pregnant women all over the place. I'll give the Apostle Paul the last word. Ephesians 4, beginning in 17. Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They've lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your formal way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourselves with a new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Lord, we simply ask that you will show us who you really are. And we know that as we glimpse you, as we are drawn to you, we will become more and more like you. Lord, I pray for that for every one of us in this room, that we will seek you with all our hearts and experience that transformation into the image of God, the image of Christ that you have designed for us. May we be clothed in true righteousness and holiness. In Jesus' name, amen.